0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective. I'm your host, Dallas Taylor.
1: And I'm Alexis.
0: And for today's episode, we are going to be going over and discussing (laughs) Book Club Volume 2. For any new listeners that we have that didn't catch last month, this is something that we are going to do. Because we kind of have like diverging tastes, right? Like sometimes I want to read something that I don't want to make Alexis read. And sometimes <laughs> she wants to read things that I don't make her read. So,
1: yeah, sometimes I open the app by myself and say, hmm, this cover art is pretty. Let's read it.
0: That's crazy. So this week I will be talking about Emil Ferris's My Favorite Thing is Monsters.
1: And I will be talking about Jane Foster Valkyrie. Written by Jason Aaron and L. Al Ewing. Ewing. Al
0: Ewing. Ewing. that's how you pronounce Ewing.
1: it. Ewing. There you go. See, I like kind of stumbled over the first and last name together. I was just gonna. They go cancel with each it. other
0: out. Then, if you just like really fumble the whole way through. You say, ah. <laughs> You'll just say, "Oh, what an aggressively British name." Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, we love it. Per- fun fact, though, for any of these, whenever you're going through al ewing always writes good shit so like if you like this al ewing is an all-star
1: and i will say i have to say right off the top or i feel like i'll get clocked for it on twitter this came to me by recommendation from our lovely twitter friend on the interweb um kurt swaggers so i'm shouting you out at the very beginning because i was reading the list of everything That everyone was suggesting, and I will say, it was very hard to choose, because I was going through the comments on the tweet that Dallas posted, and there were so many good ones, so I added them all to my list, so I'm going to read them all, I promise, but I didn't know that there was a Valkyrie run of Jane Foster, so Kurt suggested it, and here I am, just saying it right out the get-go.
0: It's been on my list of shame for a long time, so... (laughs) Shout out to you for getting to it before me, because... I know, that never happens. I know. Um, Before before we get into all that, though, I got to get back to the script and (laughs) plug our socials right here in the beginning for all you new listeners. Please go follow our Twitter account, at CMX Collective, as well as our Instagram, The Comics Collective.
1: Maybe not follow The Comics Collective Instagram for a minute, because I forgot the password, so... (laughs) (laughs) i I got a new phone so don't follow it for a few days because i gotta get back in
0: it's got some great content you know it hasn't posted since the second day it was made (laughs) it's a real good follow i mean i have
1: so many instagrams i had to get rid of some okay i'm trying to start a career
0: i don't even i i feel like my instagram is vestigial you know (laughs) i post on there what three times a year and it's always a picture of my wife like she's neat true so okay
1: but yes also right off the top we would love if everyone would go rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening to us right now we love to see it we want to hear from you go leave us your thoughts um and maybe though we'll like read one on air if somebody does it so
0: Lol. I'm literally checking right now if anyone's written one since I last checked. Thank because God. so this is riveting radio. As you listen <laughs> to me type something, um, while I'm doing this, I'm and Eric's five stars. So, <laughs> all right, we still yep. just have the one. So get on that, guys. Top,
1: top, everyone. We have more friends than one. Come on. Yeah,
0: come on. Guys, at least
1: three people that like my tweets. Come on.
0: <laughs> Log off of Twitter.com and go and write us a review. Yeah.
1: It can be in Uh, French. It can be in whatever you want it to be.
0: (laughs) Wee wee (laughs) pee-pee. We just lost two followers. Um, Yeah. But this is already a shit show. We are four minutes in, and we've already offended all of Europe. Uh, Finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments at thecomicscollective at gmail.com. We got another email this week that we're going to talk about. So... It's really fun when you write into us. We like it. It It makes us feel important.
1: We shout you out. Okay. And so with all that, let's jump right in.
0: All right. So Alexis made the brave and bold decision to make me go first. So. I forgot what
1: I said was going first. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Love that. We decided three minutes ago and you forgot. But basically, I picked My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emile Ferris, which is an original graphic novel. It is stunning. Like, I was telling Alexis, this is a piece of American literature. I know I get on here a lot, and I talk about superheroes and, like, just liking stupid stuff. And I do like stupid stuff. Don't get me wrong. But every once in a while, I get this little itch where I'm like, I should go read something intelligent that'll, like, change my life. <laughs> and I had that itch this week. And so... If you are like, hmm, I want something smart, this is the book for you. And if you are like me from two weeks ago and you're like, F that noise, I don't want to have a complex thought, <laughs> feel free to skip until you don't hear my voice anymore. <laughs> Just yep. get right to Alexis's. It's going to be superhero fun. Yeah. Mine is, empty shit. <laughs> mine is about some heavy stuff, but it's so good. It's and good I, heavy. I yeah. loved it. So basically, this book, again, the whole thing is made by Emil Ferris. And for anybody that hasn't seen the book, it's presented as, like, an oversized three-ring notebook that, like, a little mm-hmm. girl would have. So when you open it, you see printed on, like, the rings. You see the hole punches from the pages. It's very much like that your is. school notebook. And Emil Ferris, in creating this, only used Bic pens. Are so. you
1: serious?
0: Yeah, yeah. So she oh used black, blue, green, and red big pens because that's what she had when she was a little girl.
1: Oh, my heart.
0: And so like it's actually a really cool story how this book came about. Basically, Emil Ferris is an excellent, excellent artist. And then due to complications, I went. I love this book so much. I went and read like a hundred interviews from this lady. So <laughs> oh, look I'm at like, you. I'm like the world's expert on oh, my favorite things. <laughs> <laughs> You're
1: just a fanboy,
0: hero. But basically, Emil Ferris, she. One of the complications of her getting West Nile virus a few years back was paralysis. And so she had to relearn how to walk and how to draw. And so as part of her physical therapy, she finally got around to making the graphic novel she'd always wanted to. Mm -hmm. And that book is my favorite thing is monsters. And it's very much like, it's a fictional book, right? Karen Mm -hmm. isn't a real character. These characters aren't real, but also like, it is somewhat autobiographical. And so you have to often ask yourself questions of like, what if this comes from Emile's life and what if this is fictitious, you know? Yeah. Because much like the main character, Karen Reyes, Emil Ferris grew up in Chicago in the 1960s. And so basically my favorite thing is Monsters follows the life of a little girl named Karen Reyes who is a werewolf. Or at least that's what she wants you to believe that she is it's she's a little girl growing up in the 1960s that very much because of her heritage as part native american and part latinx she is perceived as less than and other by the community and she very much has to live in like a part of town where people like her have been grouped by the vast majority or who she calls the mob, the mean, ordinary and boring. And so her book takes the stance that monsters like werewolves, Frankenstein, vampires, all the like classic universal monsters, right? They are beautiful. And she portrays herself and the people she admires in her book as monsters. And this book then goes on To have really complex and interesting conversations about life and the hard choices we make, the kind of monsters that everybody is, and the kind of monsters that people become because of the life choices they have to make. And a sort of exploration of a young girl's own exploration of her sexual identity and basically finding herself through the art and the media around her finding her place in a very complex world the narrative basically follows karen who decides that she is going to become a detective to solve the murder of her upstairs neighbor anka and in her detective work she comes across a series of tapes where anka goes on to describe her life experience growing up in germany in the 1920s 30s and then into the 40s and so you have this this dual narrative where there's a little girl living in Chicago right at the tail end of the civil rights movement and this older woman who lived in Germany leading up to and then during World War II and the Nazi party. And so one narrative culminates with the death of Martin Luther King Jr. and one culminates with the Holocaust. And it definitely it sets up this interesting parallel that I think you're meant to look at. But getting a little bit deeper than just an overall summary of what the book is about, I want to explore a couple of the characters in this book. So first and foremost, there's Karen, who is an adorable little werewolf. She draws herself as a werewolf, and like her signature look is half-transformed. She just has these cute little fangs and little pointy ears, and then she's definitely gone like, detective outfit right so she has a fedora and this big oversized trench coat that she made her mom pin up for her because in the beginning of the book she says like i might as well dress how i want to is like and give them a reason to think that i'm weird and different because like they're already they're already going to hate me so i might as well just like do what i want because what's the worst case scenario they're still gonna hate me you know
1: that's so cute and so sad at the same time (laughs)
0: That's kinda of how this whole book is, a little bit. It's like But it's
1: so real. That's so how real life is as a little girl and a little boy, you know.
0: And so she she presents herself as that little werewolf. And then one of the other major characters is her older brother Deez, who is then like a rough around the edges, greaser type character who has had to be tough to defend his mother and sister in this tough world that they inhabit, right? He's a bit of a womanizer, he makes bad decisions, and really this book, there's a really interesting bit in this book, I'm already going down a rabbit hole, but she loves, her and her brother both adore art, right? And so they go to the Chicago Museum of Art all the time. And so she's really well versed in classical paintings. And if you've seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you are aware that the very famous example of pointillism, all those people in the park, right? That's in the Chicago Museum of Art, right? And so she says that her brother thinks that people in life is all just kind of gray, like pencil shading. She says her mom thinks that people are either white or black, like good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. And she says that she thinks they're both wrong. She says that she thinks it looks gray, but it's actually a field of white that has thousands and thousands of little black dots based on like the decisions and the different choices that people make throughout their life. And the book very much follows that it's like every character you see is some shade of gray and you begin to see what the dots are that have made them that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so Dee's definitely has some, some shades of gray to him, but you see him as a really great mentor, brother and friend to Karen. And then her mother is another major character and a s- small spoiler here, but like, it's, it's not a huge deal, but her mom early in the story is diagnosed with cancer. And so throughout the book, you get to see Karen and D's basically grapple with what their life's going to look like without their saint of a mother. And interesting enough, her mother is one of the only people that she decides to draw, like really realistically, like everybody mm-hmm. else is either a monster or like D's, is very much a mural of a person. He's very bright and vibrant and Mm -hmm. almost cartoonish. But her mom is really realistically rendered. And then the final character that I want to talk a little bit about is the upstairs neighbor, Anka, who at the beginning of the book is murdered and starts the story where Karen is trying to figure out her murder. And Anka, is she adorns the cover, and she's always drawn in this sort of spectral blue color. And the majority of this first volume, and I should say, this book is the first half of a two-volume set, and volume two has not come out yet. Ooh. So it, a little bit. It seems like it stops a little bit mid-sentence, honestly, because <laughs> really? it's just like, all right, this is what we have done, publish this, and then keep going, because it was initially supposed to be a one-volume book, but it just kept getting bigger and bigger because that's how the story played out, right? Mhm. That's awesome. Throughout the story, you see a lot of this first volume is about Anka's life and Karen learning about and interpreting Anka's life from being a little girl in 1920s Germany to being a grown woman in Nazi-occupied Germany. So that's a little bit about the characters. They're really great. Um, but I think some of the themes of this book that I want to talk a little bit about in pitching it are first and foremost, The otherness of being a monster. So I think there was this really dramatic shift in horror with the writing of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where the monster went from something to be feared to something to be empathized with, right? Frankenstein isn't scary. Frankenstein is somebody that is suffering because of what the world did to him. And the book very much falls into that where each person that shows up in the book and is depicted by Karen as a monster is a somewhat tragic character. And so you get... That's a a really cool visual signal that when someone shows up and looks like one of the monsters, be they Frankenstein, the mummy, a werewolf, a vampire, there's a twinge of tragedy, and the world has shaped them in a way that Karen thinks is beautiful. And... um. Uh, a monster that they return to throughout the book is Medusa to kind of show this that like the the general narrative of Medusa is that she was this terrifying monster that the hero showed up to dispatch right but Karen and also Anka both observe that Medusa was just a person that didn't quite fit in and then somebody barged into her house and and murdered her for it you know and so this book does that a lot, where it flips the monster as the hero and the the sort of mob of people as the villains. And I think it's a really, really interesting way to explore Karen's feelings of being other as a little girl. Because it's something that a lot of groups of people have felt throughout history, right? <laughs> Humanity loves to make people that are a little bit different than the norm other. Or even just they like to determine what the norm is, and then anybody that doesn't fit into that is other. And Karen, finding herself there, begins to empathize with these monsters. And one of the major ways that Karen does not fit in with the norm of 1968 is her her sexual orientation as a lesbian. She is discovering these feelings about herself that she has for her good friend that are very much being like swept under the rug and discounted and not not accepted by the people in her life. But they're like there's a lot of intentionality in her portrayal of herself as a werewolf, because so much of the werewolf narrative or the like the wolf man narrative, is somebody who, throughout, like without any choice of their own, there's something monstrous inside of them that they're trying to suppress, right? Like that's the core tenet of the werewolf story is i'm I'm this good person with something ugly inside of me that mm-hmm. humanity says is bad. and I'm gonna do everything in my power to keep that inside me, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what yeah. she's being taught in her book. And that's something that is very much been taken as like a queer coded thing that, like, she feels that she has to hide that within herself, right? She has to keep that to herself. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it's an accident that she portrays herself as a werewolf or her best friend who who shares those feelings for her. of uh, Dracula, which famously in the 1930s had a scene where two women almost kissed. It was like very scandalous at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so it it very much was one of the only bits of representation that the LGBTQ plus community had at that time. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually, it's really cute. Karen and her friend, they watch that movie together and they both kind of like, they have this little conversation where the friend's like, do you think like bride of Dracula could like have a girlfriend, you know? And like the little friend is drawn as a vampire. Right. Yeah. Karen's like, "Oh, Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that for sure. And it's just, it's just, it's very sweet. Um, and so there's like, there's the universal monsters, but then there are like, just the monstrous aspects of people. And so for instance, you find out throughout the course of the book, and I'm not, I'm going to try my best not to spoil this, but you find out that like Dee's her brother, while he is an excellent brother to Karen, he loves her very much. He does everything he can to take care of her. He's not the best person in the world. And he consistently mm-hmm. makes decisions that that are bad and they have negative effects on his life. Or even Anka, you find that to rescue herself from the Nazi party and to rescue herself from a concentration camp that she finds herself in, she agrees to start a brothel. And so, like, <laughs> she like she grew up in a brothel her mother Mm -hmm. was a prostitute she very much she then was drafted to become a prostitute a child prostitute it's like she was really familiar with sex work and she was able to leverage that but then in doing that like she definitely she entraps other women and girls into a cycle that was vicious to her Mm -hmm. and really scarred her but she she becomes a monster in doing that right Mm -hmm. and so it's fascinating this way but I don't want to ramble much longer. So, wow! I think I, one of
1: your kittens has something to say.
0: Yeah, if you can hear my cat in the back, I closed the door, and <laughs> he does not like that. So I can hear can,
1: her if you listen very quietly. You can hear her <laughs> being just protesting. You might be protesting. able to hear
0: just meow, meow, meow in the background <laughs> from everyone. Say hello to Susan, my cat.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but the final thing I want to say about my favorite thing is monsters. It's just the beauty and the artistry in this book. Mm -hmm. I mentioned before that it's presented as a little girl's notebook and it's all drawn with big pens. And so it very much like it's an artifact in and of itself, right? It doesn't have strict panels and borders like you would expect Mm -hmm. from a comic book. It's very much the pages are full and just dripping with narrative in the way that like a little girl would do in her in her book. And it's honestly, it's one of the most visually striking things I've ever, I've ever read. And it it goes from hyper-realistic to hyper-surrealist to simple and fast to tell stories. There are so many different variations of artistry in this book, and every bit of it is beautiful and intentional. And I think that's, that's like the big thing I would say about my favorite thing is monsters. If any of this at all has sounded interesting to you, I would say that my favorite thing is is monsters is both beautiful and intentional in everything that it does and i don't think that if you choose to read this book you will walk away the same having read it it impacted me really deeply i loved this book a lot it was in a stack of many books that i read for the purpose of finding what i want to talk about with book club and i knew just a few pages in that there was no way i wasn't going to talk about my favorite thing is monsters because mm-hmm. it's that special so i hope even if it's, like, a little bit out of your comfort zone, if you find yourself much more drawn to superhero comics or you don't really drift into the more serious – I don't want to say more serious because, like, I don't want to belittle superhero comics. I love them, right? <laughs> but, <know>. like, <laughs> my favorite thing in Monsters is definitely different, and I think it's a little more daunting. But if you'll take the risk and you'll read this book, I think you will really appreciate it, and you you'll get a lot from it. So that's that's all I have to say about my favorite thing is monsters by Emil Ferris. I am desperately awaiting volume two. I just add it to my list of things that I'm waiting for more of, be that cough, cough saga. saga or crowded or now my favorite thing is monsters. Cheers. But when volume two of this book comes out, I assure you, you will have to get an earful about it all over again.
1: Book club round two, just the second part,
0: <laughs> <laughs> like volume ten at that point or whatever.
1: Yeah, right. no kidding.
0: Your go. Do you have any questions for me? Me and Alexis, before this, we drafted some questions for each other about our books.
1: Yes. So I do have two. I feel like you, like, kind of um, answered them a little bit, but I feel like you could go into more depth if you wanted to. But um, my first one is, what do you think of Karen's coping mechanism of riding herself into a monster? I mean, I feel like the whole point, from what I got from my little... um, blurb that you gave me I feel like it's definitely a coping mechanism and what do you think what do you think about it like do you think it was successful do you think it helped her kind of sort things out what do you think
0: I mean with this book being incomplete it definitely has some threads to explore right mm-hmm. but towards the end of the book there's a really stirring moment where Dee's reads through Karen's journal oh. and he confronts her and he's like you're not a werewolf like you're a little girl and he, like, holds her in front of the mirror and makes her look at herself. And it's the one part in the whole book that you get to see what she actually looks like. Aww. And she's, like, a cute little girl. And it's it's really beautifully drawn. And and then he kind of realizes, like, what he's doing. And he's, like, oh, I'm being a dick. Yeah. And so then he like, he retracts that a little bit. And she goes immediately back to drawing herself as a werewolf. But when her mom does end up dying from the cancer, she has this dream where she spoiler yeah and the mom dies from cancer <laughs> sorry I mean, jeez. It, it's pretty telegraphed <laughs> jeez uh, um but she she has this dream where she kills all the universal monsters so she like she puts a stake in Dracula's heart she closes the tomb of the mummy she and then the last thing she does is she uses a silver cane to beat the werewolf to death Aww. and as she does that the werewolf transforms back into her. And that's sort of like the last bit that we get in the book about her portraying herself as a werewolf is sort of like this lashing out in anger that the monsters didn't save her, that this portrayal of herself as like majestic and beautiful in her otherness didn't stop the pain that she was feeling. But I Mm -hmm. think volume two will be a lot more about her wrestling with and coming to terms with that, if that makes sense.
1: That does make sense. And that's really cute and really sad at the same time.
0: That's this whole book, man.
1: <laughs> really cute and really
0: sad. There you go. <laughs> I, I cannot recommend this book enough. All right. You have a second question, right?
1: Yes, I did. Um, so for a little context, Dallas actually sent me a YouTube video of kind of like a little mini rundown. Um, and so my question kind of goes off that a little bit. But I mean, of course, it probably definitely pertains to the story um but what do you think of the comparison of monster stories throughout the ages and how they reflect real life events
0: i mean i definitely think there's more to monster flicks than we give them credit right one of my favorite movies of all time is the original godzilla or even the modern interpretation of shin godzilla that it's this beautiful story about the effects of the nuclear bomb in Japan. When you I love Frankenstein, when you read Frankenstein, it's very much about humanity hating you and rejecting you for what humanity has made you. Right. And that's something that like I feel a little bit right now. It sounds silly, but like I'm I'm trying so desperately to find a job in New York City right now. I'm a I'm moving out there in two weeks. And there's a part of me that's, like, that's scared that I don't have anything solid yet, even though I've applied to hundreds of jobs in the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's, like, a little bit of anger in me that was, like, I did the stuff you told me to do, right? Like, I went to college. I got my degree. I have tons of work experience, like, and yet all the reports are saying, like, oh, people don't want to hire new college graduates right now. I'm, like, well, then what the hell was all that for? You know, like, you made me that. Yeah. What's the purpose? And it's like I feel a little bit like Frankenstein there. But then even on like a more meta textual level, it's definitely these monster movies are definitely about people being othered, right? And they want to be included. They want to be a part of society. But again, the mob, mean, ordinary, and boring people don't want to let them be a part of the group. And so I think there's a lot of solace and comfort that you can take in monster movies, in identifying yourself as the Wolfman instead of Karen Rea's little girl that feels different. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if that super answered your question, but no, I think it did. It's what I felt in my heart.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. That yeah. Was a good answer.
0: All right. So it's your turn. I'm going to turn off my mic, go make myself a sandwich and come back <gasps> in 20 minutes.
1: I, I don't really want to hear reader. what you have
0: to say about this book.
1: That's alright. I was
0: texting. Uh, of course, me. I want to hear. <laughs> yeah, f you, buddy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just kidding. I was reading tweets. Um, okay. Da, 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 da. All right. My turn.
0: Your go. Your turn.
1: Okay, everyone. So I, like we said at the beginning, I got the chance to read Jane Foster's Valkyrie, um, written by Jason Aaron and Al Ewing. Ewing. <laughs> we will never be able to say that name correctly. But so I kind of have it broken down a little bit into a few parts because there's a lot of different, um, I guess you could say plot changes. I feel like there's a few different groupings throughout the 10 issues that I read. So we very first, of course, are introduced to our amazing heroine in the beginning, Jane Foster, and she kind of gives us a little background where she is discussing who she is, where she's been, and we see she introduces herself as Dr. Jane Foster. Um, She mentions that she was also known as Thor, and she mentions that she was carrying the hammer and the title for a friend, but had to step down, and I thought that was a super fun um kind of introduction to like why she's not i mean she's not thor anymore so um and then she introduces how she became valkyrie she says there came upon a war and i was called and i answered and now i am jane foster valkyrie and i think it was really important to first say right off the bat that something that is very um highlighted throughout the entirety of these books is that she is very adamant that she is still Jane Foster and also Valkyrie. She keeps those two very separate and she even addresses that she says, I don't think there is anything wrong with still wanting my human part because she has a secret identity. Nobody knows except for her best friend, Lisa, Um, nobody knows that she's Jane Foster as well as the Valkyrie and um, right off the top we see her jumping right into combat and um, kind of she's fighting these um, I thought they were hilarious the very first villains they are they're like knockoff rollerblade Power Rangers, and I just think they're hilarious. They literally have rollerblade styles. They're writing rollerblades around, and they have all of the sacred Asgardian Valkyrie um, weapons and equipment, and they're using them to rob—I think they're robbing a bank vault car like one of those armored vehicles and she just goes in and totally is like okay (laughs) we're on a different we're on a different skill set here and she just takes all of them out but while she's fighting most of them one gets away and he has um one of the most I guess you say the most important um piece of the collection of valkyrie weapons and he has the sword that was wielded by brunhilde the one of the valkyries that has passed on and we see that he escapes and she overall loses that last piece and she travels to um she travels straight to have a conference with Brynhilde about the possibility of being able to find this sword because it's she wants to make sure that it does not fall into the wrong hands because it is extremely powerful and deadly. Um, and we get a little bit of background on our own without her knowledge that the man who stole it originally was killed by a very familiar character to us by the name of Bullseye. And that sword falls into his hands. And I I kind of knew who Bullseye was to begin with, but um, it kind of introduces a little bit, bit more too, for those who don't know. Um, it kind of introduced it as he can make any weapon deadly, but when he is provided with the deadliest weapon, it's just a match made in hell, not heaven. And so um, she's presented with the challenge of having to find this weapon. And on her way back from her audience with Brunhilde in, um, oh my gosh, in Valhalla, she goes all the way to Valhalla to talk to Brunhilde. And on her way back, she brings with her Heimdall, who I recognized, which was kind of funny because I'd never seen him on the comic end of things. And so that was really fun. Um, And with this, we are also introduced into, she calls it her Valkyrie vision, I think, and where she's able to kind of survey her surroundings with a different look. And she realizes that she can see impending death of anyone around her, depending on the size of the orb above their head. And while she is taking this in, she does not realize that they are being watched. And um, I feel like I'm I'm gonna say a spoiler, but I feel like it's one that needs to be said to be able to go with the rest of the story. So um, Bullseye sneaks up behind them and runs the sword through Heimdall, and he oh he dies and um. <gasps> Dell's clutching his pearls. <gasps> yeah, he dies. And it I honestly, I was like, there's no way. There's no way he just died just like that. And I was like, that's a little, that's a little out of nowhere. Um, but I think that they did that to show, like, yeah, this this means business. This is a whole different type of sword that we've got going here. And we kind of see an important moment where Jane realizes that um The best thing to do might be what everyone else thinks you shouldn't do. And she, while she's fighting Bullseye, she realizes that she in some ways is losing. And so using her um, all weapon with her gauntlet that can become whatever aids her and what she needs, um, she smashes the sword and ruins it, and renders it useless so that it no longer can fall into anyone's hands, good or evil, uh, because she realized that was too large of a power to be had. Um, so we see after that battle that um, something that I didn't know, I feel like I learned a lot about actual mythology with this as well. Um. I didn't know that the Valkyrie were the guides to the afterlife. That was something that was very interesting for me to learn with this because she, um, she's talking to Heimdall while he's dying because he didn't instantly die when he was stabbed. He was kind of laying down and passing slowly. And she's talking to him, and he says that he wants more to his afterlife than what is awaiting him. And she promises him that she will take him where no eyes have seen before and she tells him to stand and we get this really really amazing artwork where you can see his kind of shimmering spirit stand up out of his body and take her hand um with her pegasus standing behind her and she leads him to a different life than what he what would have been awaiting him. And I'm gonna leave that a little vague so that everyone can go and find out because it's not your traditional afterlife. Um, and with that, we see that there was a lot more behind the scenes planning with Bullseye. There's someone else who was behind that, and we um it was kind of funny because I mean. For those of you that were with the rest of us watching WandaVision and everyone's speculating about how everything was going, everyone was saying, oh, it's always it's Mephisto, he's behind everything, Mephisto's behind everything. This time I can tell you he really was. <laughs> he was sitting and scheming just the way that everybody thought that he should be with something else, but he wasn't. So we um, are introduced to Mephisto and the Grim Reaper plotting in literal hell. <laughs> of how they want the Grim Reaper to basically become the anti-Valkyrie, if that makes sense. They want to create him into somebody that brings people down to hell. To my understanding, that's what I understood that they were trying to do. And it was very interesting because we get this um, experience where the Valkyrie recognizes jane recognizes the grim reaper and recognizes what he's trying to do by taking someone down to hell and banishing them to hell so that he can become the role type of valkyrie and it's very interesting because she combats this in a way that i don't want to spoil i feel like it's also really fun so i'll leave a little vague there too but um the way she defeats him is very out of left field and I didn't see it coming either. And it kind of makes me chuckle a little bit on how she got him. So, um, very not what you'd think. And so that kind of is the first, I'd say cluster. The first four books are kind of clustered together with that plot line. And then we kind of are scooted into another one with, um, Doctor Strange and it was very fun to see some familiar faces throughout this um, run and we see we get this um, issue where it's like super doctors it, it kind of made me giggle because for those of you who don't know um, Jane Foster is a doctor and we while we are reading the story of Valkyrie it's very important to her that we know that she's also um, a doctor and with every beginning of every issue she reintroduces herself which I find is very interesting and she does it a little bit differently each time as well she always mentions she's a doctor she mentions she's a Valkyrie and every once in a while she'll mention that she's a cancer survivor and she doesn't do it every time but she always does it in a little bit of different wording. And it kind of sets up this um, plot point that comes with the super the super doctors issue. Where they are commissioned to go and save death. And I feel like this is a point that I kind of want to talk about a little bit more. And something that comes up. Um, it has a very interesting view on grief and the challenges that come with the topic of death and something that Jane says in the beginning of the issues is that she said while she was Thor she stared death in the eyes and she says it's kind of hard to go back to a normal life after staring death in the eyes and I found it very interesting because She did it as Thor. And then in this book, she proceeds to do it as Jane Foster. And I feel like that was a very important point that is made that she's more than just the roles that she carries. And I feel like with her identity as Dr. Jane Foster, she really wants to feel that she's still there. And she's not just a superhero. And there's more depth to her than just being these figureheads of Thor or a Valkyrie. Um, And we see there's a very important um, few panels where they're presented with challenges to get to the bedside of death where she is dying. And one of their challenges is that there is a painting that they soon realize shows everyone something different. And we're shown the fact that jane has experienced a lot of grief and a lot of torment in her life because of death and i think the whole point of that is that they have to come to the decision that it's they still have to save death because they have this inf- interesting conversation between amongst themselves where um like, why why do we have to save her? If she dies, who's to say that anyone else is going to die? If there's no death, then we will all be saved of this grief. And it's a very interesting um, conversation because we see how she comes to the realization that her grief is what made her strong and what was able to give her the opportunity to be able to carry these mantles of importance. And she is able to pass to um, death's bedside as herself instead of the Valkyrie. And she's able to save death. And I feel like that was a really interesting issue um, that came a little bit out of nowhere. I mean, I wasn't anticipating it. But I feel like it was very important for her as a character to realize her importance without her titles. Um And with that, we kind of jump into the last um, few issues with their own little bout of challenges. And we see, we open with um, kind of some more of the Asgardian folklore. And we meet Tyr, it's spelled T-Y-R, and he is introduced as... Thor's older brother, which is very interesting to me. I'd never heard of him, never met him, and we see that he comes back from it made me it made me think that he was coming back from Valhalla, but I could be incorrect with that. But don't quote me on it, everyone. Um, to basically reign try and take over everything again with a reign of terror using some of the mythology. Um, they He wants to. Unleash something referred to. As ode or. Um, akava. I might have said that wrong. But sorry everyone. <laughs> and he wants to bring. Basically. Death to the world. And it's kind of presented in this. Big black cloud. And there's. These murderous black dogs that erupt from the core of the earth and it's just overall pandemonium and nobody can figure out what's going on and we see our very familiar heroes we've got captain america iron man and spider-man all trying to rally together to fight these interesting dogs that came out of nowhere and they bring a feeling of emptiness and hollowness with them and we see That Thor comes and confronts Valkyrie, and they kind of have an unspoken understanding of what's going on, and they travel together to the source. And we see um, the pure power of Jane Foster as a Valkyrie in these next few panels because we see how quickly Tyr is able to overthrow Thor and take over his powers and he is consumed by this big black cloud of nothingness and he becomes a shell of what he was and it's kind of described as he is empty in the eyes and it's very interesting because we can see the whole like all of the coloring leaves the art and everything becomes what i would kind of describe as the feeling of grief or depression and it just kind of feels like everything lost its meaning. And we see Jane trying to combat this in her Valkyrie form. And she uses her all weapon. Um and I she trans she's able to transform it into whatever would aid her in her battle. And she transforms it into a staff of this very particular piece of wood that holds an unholy power and we soon realize that that's the whole point as to why Tyr wanted them to come and he is able to strip her of that weapon and flee to go and try to take over Asgard and we see kind of this character growth of her realizing that she is more go back to the fact that she realizes she's more than just a Valkyrie. And we see how this wave of just pure darkness takes over these characters. I mean, we see more familiar faces. We see Lady Sif. She puts up a fight, but as soon as the cloud touches her, she just becomes nothingness. And um, I feel like it was a very interesting ongoing theme of how to overcome those feelings of nothingness and low grief type of things. I feel like that was a very interesting theme that I was following and how again and again Jane had to come back from the brink of death and the brink of nothingness and how she earned the rights and the, the, the ability to be able to be a Valkyrie. And I feel like that was something that was really, really cool to see her growth as a character over and over again and really um, kind of hammer it in how she is there because of who she is. And so I thought that was really cool. And that's what I'll say because there's still more, but I want you to read it, Dallas. Are you eating no. a sandwich?
0: <laughs> no. I will not read it. I was laying down. I was, I listened the whole time. I just laid down.
1: No, you were eating a sandwich.
0: <laughs> I wish. I'm hungry.
1: <laughs> we're almost done.
0: That sounds super interesting. I mean, I love Jason Aaron's work on Thor. And mm-hmm. my favorite bit of his run on Thor was when Jane was Thor. So, like, I know I'm going to love this book. It's just sometimes it's hard for me to get caught up on a book when there's, like, there's always stuff to read, you know? So, like, this definitely has pushed me to want to read it.
1: Oh, good. Do you have any questions for me?
0: Hmm. Yes. (laughs) All right. So my first question, do, 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 (laughs) do, do, do. How do you like the role of Valkyrie as a next step for Jane Foster?
1: I think it's so awesome. I feel like it's so much more personal for her. Because, I mean, like I said, she introduces herself uh, in the beginning as she was Thor. But she was simply holding the title for a friend. And when he needed it back, she stepped down. And I feel like that kind of introduces an interesting thought as, like, she never really saw herself as Thor. She was just... Participating in a part, but I really feel like she sees herself in the Valkyrie role more than what she did at Thor
0: interesting. all right. What did you think of the incorporation of Norse mythology in this story?
1: I loved it. I thought it was so fun to really get a good grasp of like who the Valkyrie were as a whole, what they were what they stood for, what they did. I feel like I learned a lot about just them as a whole i mean i was familiar with the term but i had no idea what that entailed so i was very interested by that um and also it was interesting it was really fun to see um how they depicted valhalla i did really like that it was fun
0: i feel like norse mythology is like having a bit of a renaissance the last 10 years i feel like everything is yeah like that viking show was huge the most recent god of war was all all uh, norse and that man ruled by the way yeah everybody's everybody's in a nice little norse moment and that's fun that this book's capitalizing on that all right is this a good jumping on point for someone who hasn't read much of jane's story
1: I would say yes. I feel like I got a really good grasp of who she was as a character and what she's been through and what brought her to this point. Um and I feel like it really explores her personality and her hardships a lot. I mean, of course I haven't read her as Thor yet.
0: So um, good. It's so good. I, I'd
1: really want to after reading this. So um I don't know how that how deep they go in with her on that, but I really feel like it explores her as an individual a lot, as well as being a hero.
0: I like it. All right. And my final question, where does this land on your favorite lists for books we've read for this
1: show? (gasps) Oh, hmm. Well, we all know that I do love Marauders, but I will say I would say they're probably tied. I really enjoyed it. I It was another one that I didn't really want to put down. I read it all the way through. Um, if I had to, I would probably say out of the past three weeks of what we've done, I would say Marauders was probably first. Um, Hawks, Pox. I feel like those go together, though. So I'd say those two and then this one. Yeah. Because I feel like the, that is a whole story. Instead of oh, just sure. those, like, issues. So, yeah. I'd say that storyline and then this storyline.
0: I dig it. I yes. dig it. Thank um, you, friend Kurt. All right. Do you have anything else you want to say before we move into listener emails? No, I feel good.
1: Do you feel good? Do you want to feel like I need to say anything more?
0: No, I mean, I haven't read the book, so, like, it was cool sure. to me.
1: Cool. Can. It
0: sounded pretty dope. I will definitely read it do I? um i really like this book club thing that we do it was a fun it idea fun. it is fun all right so we have an email from kurt mm-hmm. swaggers because
1: <laughs> we made him and
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we bullied him into emailing we us bullied him. no it was so sweet he like dm'd me today he's like have you guys already recorded because wait i have to do a british accent because he's from love island he <laughs> said White, have you already done uh blimey have you already done your podcast and i said no and he said in it and i said okay and so he says hi dallas and lexi no i'm just kidding i'm not gonna do that (laughs)
1: he's gonna thrash you on twitter for that
0: he says questions for valkyrie jane foster for thursday's book club he says hey dallas and lexi i'm from england i love love island and i love the french no, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. He says, Hey Dawson, Lexi, I love your podcast and was thrilled to hear you were discussing Valkyrie Jane Foster this week. I got a couple of questions if that's okay. What was your favorite all weapon configuration? Uh, oh. For example, the mace, wings, shield, sword, etc. cetera. So what was your favorite all weapon?
1: I feel like I love the panels. We get a really dramatic, like full page of her wings and I feel like that one was the most, like, show-stopping image. But I just love – oh, what was – I don't remember which one she used. But she was fighting bullseye, and she just cracked him one right in the face. And I thought it was so funny because he was so cocky about it the whole time. I think it was the mace, but um, <laughs> she just, like, whacked him one right in the face. And I was like, yeah, that that tracks. That works. Because he, like, had her by the arm. And she just, like, shot it right out of her, because she wears her little arm gauntlet brace mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And so she just, like, shot it right at his face, and it was it was pretty good.
0: Love it, that. It was great. We love to see Bullseye get maimed, honestly. <laughs> I know. Mean, um, I mean, so. as, as a Daredevil fan, I love when <laughs> Bullseye gets it. Yeah. Um, unlike other Asgardian heroes, Jane's story is grounded in human-slash-mortal experience. What part of her journey feels most impactful for you? Thanks for the podcast.
1: Trying to balance her normal life with her Asgardian life. And her mortal life kind of suffers a little bit. Because we get the introduction of her being this super successful doctor that has to sneak away and is also a Valkyrie. And it's starting to affect her work and her um, reliability and we we get this scene with her um, boss I guess you could say where her boss is like dude I can't trust you you're never where you say you are I don't know who you are anymore I she's like I love you but you're a real real shit employee (laughs) and it's I feel like it's very Like heart-wrenching because she gets demoted significantly and I feel like that would just really take the wind out of anybody's sails to be on top of the world in your career and then because you're so torn with something else that you can't say you can't tell her what's going on so you just have to take it and deal with it and I feel like that's something that's really powerful because a lot of the time we don't want to tell our bosses what's going on in our life and it's something that we want to keep close to home. So we, f- we let our, our ambitions sometimes suffer because of that. And I feel like that's something that's a little bit relatable for more people than maybe some of her other experiences. So that one was something that was pretty impactful to me. I think.
0: I like that. I'm a huge fan of secret identities in general. Yeah. So when you were like, oh, this is basically Thor, but also has a secret identity. I was like, hmm. Mm. I like that. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thanks for writing in, Kurt. That was, that was you lovely. You are a great person. So, Alexis, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap this slush puppy up?
1: <laughs> final thoughts? I need to read more about monsters, and Dallas needs to read... Um, all of the books that I like. The
0: oh, yeah.
1: I need uh, to run this show now. We're reading only my books now.
0: I mean, fair. It'd probably be more popular. I'm always just like, here's this random old thing, or here's this
1: or Spider-Man super
0: this super dense book that's really sad. You're like, I don't wanna read that. And you're like, here's this really fun, quirky book. And everyone's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's amazing. <laughs> Our two book clubs, you've been like, here are two all timers. And I've been like, here's this rando Godzilla thing. And then here's my favorite <laughs> monsters. I forgot
1: you did Godzilla. You're such a weenie.
0: <laughs> I am a weenie. And I, I love, love
1: it. you, though. <laughs>
0: Um. All right, so speaking of old runs of things, next week on the uh-huh. show, we will be going over and talking about Roger Stern's time with the amazing Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. So, I basically, I gave you all enough of a break from Spider-Man. Back on the agenda, baby. Back to we it. <laughs> right back to it. Bring it on. This, this is all new to me. I haven't read these stories, and <gasps> they... They often show up in people's like top 10 Spider-Man stories of all time lists. And like, I know them all by name. Like I know nobody can stop the juggernaut. I know the Hobgoblin saga, but like, I've never actually read any of them. So I'm really, really excited. I've already started doing some background reading of like his spectacular Spider-Man stuff, but I'm about to start the amazing Spider-Man run that we're actually going to talk about. So make sure to tune in next week. We're doing that with Glenn Matchett who he's a really great guy he runs his own podcast that he can introduce everything next week but make sure not to miss that and again thank you so much for listening to the comics collective bye bye